Hello and good morning or afternoon to you, my dear listener. Welcome back to, or maybe for the first time, to the Curious Worldview podcast. This episode is a conversation I recorded with a man who wears many fascinating hats, but the subject of this chat was his book, This Is Not Propaganda, an author by the name of Peter Pomeretsev. Included in his repertoire of authorship, he wrote a book that traveled him through some unbelievable stories of Russia titled, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And as well, in addition, he then published what is the subject of this podcast, his latest book, which traveled him across the world, investigating the consequences of misinformation and propaganda in several different developing nations. This is not propaganda. And following up with what was another unbelievable title, Peter has such a knack for great book titles. Peter Pomerantsev is a British journalist, author, TV producer, and visiting fellow at the Institute of Global Affairs at the London School of Economics. And if that wasn't enough, he's also involved in a number of incredibly exciting ventures as well. And if you're keen on learning more about him, just follow the link that I've added in this description and it'll take you to his personal pages and so forth. In this podcast uh, with Peter, I wanted to better understand the world of narrative and politics, misinformation and uh, propaganda as he sees it through his worldview. Because he's tasted these dishes in so many different corners of the planet and therefore has this incredibly interesting, well-rounded worldview when it comes to these topics. Uh, this podcast was recorded over a month ago, and so my opening question was a little bit more relevant, but my hope was to enter deep into the issue via this Australian example of how misinformation is dividing a community, and then climb our way back out of the issue with some sort of clarity to get to the roots of causation and potentially a solution as well. I'm afraid I failed to tell that story in the way I intended, but what happened instead was of beautiful consequence because... Peter ended up taking me on a journey lined the whole way with his contagious enthusiasm. And so we ended up speaking about, among other things, why identity issues is at the root of populism, the distinction between facts and narrative, why Peter doesn't rate Churchill as a particularly good writer, and why propaganda these days hinges solely on one's ability to collect data. So tell some mates about this show, pump your good juice into the algorithm via a juicy five-star review, written comment, and just get involved. Hang around to the end to hear some of my uh, thoughts from the discussion. But with that all said, you're a bunch of legends for tuning in. So do yourselves a favor and consume as much Pomerantsev as you can. His work will expand your worldview. And here is the man himself, Peter Pomerantsev. Mr. Peter, thank you for joining me, mate. That was awful. That was so bad. <laughs> don't do that again. Don't, don't, don't take one of the most beautiful languages in the world and 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 do that to it again. That was, please, God. Oh, we'll go you on then. Give us but a. Is, give us a nice that, this, welcome. Uh, the whatever. So you've got to roll your R's. It's like my name. I don't mind if people mangle it. I'm, I'm fine to it. I'm, I mean, I'm used to it. But I mean, technically, it's Pomeranzev. I mean, people. I get all sorts. I get Pomer. I got Pom. My nickname <laughs> at school was Peter Pull My Pants Off. I got Pom Pater. So I'm, I'm used to it. I'm used to it being mangled. But, you know, they, yeah, it's all right. Thanks for trying. I, sh- I didn't. I'm, I'm being, I'm joking, of course. I think it's good that you've tried. <laughs> well, cheers. I mean, the, for full transparency, I think I've said Spasiba and Nostrovia a million times, but uh, that was the first attempt ever at welcome. Um, oh, hold on. Nostrovia is, not ru- N- N- Nostrovia is not Russian. Nostrovia is Polish. What are the Zavashas Ah, I mean, well similar then. as Slavs, Zavashas Dorovia. 
But no, no. Why is no Russian ever called me out on it then? They were giving, they would let me. We just, we just, we just so, we're just so used to it. It's just like, yeah, okay, it's another one trying to do Russian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You sort of roll your eyes. It's fine. Look, look. Full marks. Effort is important. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Um, Sorry. Well, yes. To to make a rather serious transition, this is the the first question that I wanted to open up with you, and it really uh, gets right into the crux of the issue. So I was hoping to get into the issue, and then from there. Uh, I have a series of questions that will hopefully pull at some of the branches. I want to ask you if you could somehow explain how two people from the same community, similar experience, similar culture, can more and more come down on abjectly opposite sides of one another. I want to highlight the extent to how abjectly opposite they are. It's not just a little bit different or a lot different. It's total opposite. Take this example. Two people live in, in Victoria, a state in Australia, and right now uh, they're neighbors. They can both be working in construction, which is an industry that is soon going to require vaccinations mandatory for work. One person already got vaccinated simply because he thought it was the correct thing to do, while the mm -hmm. other will not get vaccinated even if it costs him everything, his job, his mates, his financial security, and therefore risking his family, etc., because he's utterly convinced that the vaccine is designed to castrate him according to the new world order. It seems this extreme opposite of opinion is no longer an edge case outlier, and it is in fact very common. And especially in this exact scenario, it is happening. So how do these two hyper extremes both live concurrently in the same reality? Oh, what a great question. And that is interesting that... Um... You know, they're splitting people from the same profession and the same background because um, usually or a lot of the time um, they are at least split generationally. You know, you hear of families which are split by different, I don't know, media ecosystems or propaganda, if you want to use that word. But there's often a generational thing, you know, it's the crazy uncle or, you know, like the crazy granny or something. But, but it's interesting to see two people of the same um, kind of profession, background, and locale. Mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting. I would, I would actually want to know whether there is actually a dominating trend in the area. If somebody there was was the dissident, uh, so to speak. And and um, I don't know. I've, I've looked at research, for example, in the Donbass, the occupied areas of eastern Ukraine, and um, uh, we were looking at what kind of vaccines people prefer. And there, it's really not about the vaccines. It's really about like how that reflects your political and also cultural identity. So if you're really pro-Russian, you'll be like, I'm going to take Sputnik, the Russian vaccine. And, and if you want to take Pfizer, it was a way of signaling that you don't agree with the Russian occupation of where you live. You might be scared to say that publicly, but you express that through your Pfizer choices. So, so a lot of the time, what we're seeing, especially around health, is kind of the politicization of the health discourse, which is in many ways, a dangerous thing because health shouldn't be political. Health should be objective and evidence-based and, and scientific and above cultural identities or above political identities. So, so it's kind of really scary when you hear these examples of health becoming an identity issue mm. and science becoming an identity issue. Um, so that's, a, you know, it's, it's a bit of, it's a, you know, it's bad. I mean, you think about it kind of, you know, if we think about kind of like enlightenment values and evidence being kind of like something that we universally accept, then what we're kind of seeing is the final great battle between enlightenment values and the kind of politics of unreality and identity where the facts don't matter. It only matters who you belong to. 
And obvious, and, and, and you know, COVID's really been this moment that's really brought out what this fight is all about. It's not about left or right. Uh, it's not about, um, I don't know, whatever, uh, pro-Putin or anti-Putin. It's about, it's about an evidence-based community, an evidence-based discourse, and, and, and one that isn't. Um, and that's, that's really scary that it's sort of like, it's now kind of invading health. Because I'd say doctors are kind of our bastion of enlightenment values. At the end of the day, we trust doctors because they represent something beyond superstition and um, identity and conspiracy thinking. And, and they kind of represent, you know, the best of us and the best of humanity. Uh, not as people necessarily, but, you know, as, as a kind of what it is. Um, and knowledge and, and yeah and saving lives exactly mm. and sort of not not being not being politicized so so it's really worrying seeing the politicization of of, of health really mm. but to ask that as the opening to get to the crux of it like mm. how do you explain how they've gone down so differently because like as you as you noticed you know i wanted to pick someone same background same community mm. even same profession you know, and a couple of years ago, these two guys probably saw the world very similarly, but in a short amount of time, um, it's it's gone to that extreme. Because I think this is the common thread of all the examples that you speak about, and this is not propaganda. You know, in the different yeah. case studies, it's like how the disinformation has completely taken someone for a ride. Yeah, but the disinformation usually falls onto something much deeper. So, so, you know, there's a sort of a supply and demand side to propaganda and it never works with the demand side. I mean, going back to, you know, all my favorite theoreticians of, of propaganda, they see it as a kind of a demand that's, you know, originally created out of a technological society. People feel very atomized. They don't feel they belong in sort of big cities in the early 20th century. And propaganda is a thing that gives them a sense of community, mm. um, which is then abused and used and manipulated. But, but there's, there's, there's always a demand. So I, I don't think this information can just come and, you know, bamboozle. Whenever, whenever I've talked to people and really what my second book, This Is Not Propaganda, is about is about how it works on very, very deep cultural crises, ideological crises and mm. so on. So, so we'd always be looking at the kind of the background to this person. Why, why have they gone a certain way? What is, is it something to do with their personal psychology? You know, you know, there's a lot of analysis about how your family values you grew up with. Uh, will then color your views of the world and your receptivity to certain messaging. Or we'd look at the culture that you're living in, whether it's gone through various traumas that make it very vulnerable to propaganda. That's why I say that your case study of two people like living next to each other is very interesting. I, mm. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It happens all the time. I, I know mm. in my own family, one, one, one sibling goes one way and another sibling goes another way. But then you start digging in and, and, and you do see that there's, there's, there is like a, a long path that people went through um to to do that and, and actually goes very very deep and often you know you go back into their childhoods or or, sure. or into previous political experiences mm-hmm. um i mean in america the people that i've met who are vaccine skeptic were they didn't just become vaccine skeptic they were climate skeptic before that they mm-hmm. were skeptical about obama's um they were skeptical about whether obama was born in america they were you know it's a long tradition uh of being skeptical which which has taken them to this place. It didn't mm. just happen overnight. Are you prepared to open up on the case study of your own siblings or is it too personal for a public platform? Oh, I'm an only child. I was just talking about sort of people that I've met and stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, but, but, Did but, they like but, fall on Brexit lines or something like that? Well, we've seen a little bit on Brexit lines, but not very much to be honest. Uh, no, this is this is more, more to do with sort of Trumpy stuff in the US. 
uh, one very pro, very one very anti. Mm -hmm. But then you go back to the sort of the past and you see and you see how that's been formed. It's not just mm -hmm. the disinformation came. There's a whole set of personal experiences that 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 formed this um, and and helped inform it. So so be wary of 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 you know propaganda and you know just historically propaganda works when it takes something that's there and 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 then and then exploits it very very cynically for for very cynical ends and makes it much worse and and often the crisis that it's that it's parasiting on was itself caused by propaganda so you know it's a chicken and egg kind of situation but <laughs> you can't just appear with a magic the magic dust of disinformation and do something uh, all propaganda starts with audience analysis the best Propaganda is really a race about who has the best audience analysis. That's what it is. It's not the best, like, you know, magic meme. It's mm -hmm. who has mm -hmm. the best audience analysis, who understands the audience's best. That's why, it's, you know, there's so much social psychology that goes into it, so much behavioral psychology that goes into it. It really is a race. Who understands audiences best and who can then either exploit that or, or do something good with it? Mm. Um I'm afraid this is going to derail me, but I want to touch on that last. No, part sorry. What should I have said? Tell me what I should have said. No, no, no. <laughs> just not, not, not that I had an answer expected, but more that I wanted to follow up with identity, but just to touch on the audience analysis, yeah. I mean, that's more than polling, right? This is now sort of uh, the work of data farming, um, seeing how yeah. people interact with their various social medias to truly get a, as close to a psychological profile as you can of a, of, of a user. Is that the real audience analysis? And that's why the value of data so yeah. expensive. Yeah. So the psychological profiling based purely on your likes and shares is 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 a bit of a a bit of a hazy science. So that's certainly some so someone like Cambridge Analytica who were a group that worked with Trump and were adjacent to the Brexit campaign. They weren't part of it, but they were kind of adjacent to it. Um, uh, certainly that's the claim they made. Um, people who do this what's called psychographic mapping seriously say that's nonsense. Say for psychographic mapping, you not only do you need polling, you need much more mm -hmm. than that. You need mm -hmm. kind of in-depth anthropological analysis. So, so, so there's a lot of conflicts about whether you can really do psychological profiling based on your likes and shares. What you can do, though, clearly on likes and shares is just do loads of testing, nonstop testing. What works? What works? This stuff, you know. Um, mm -hmm. You can do a lot of other types of segmentation. You can understand a lot about people's um, uh, various types of their behaviors. Um, so there's a hell of a lot you can do. Uh, also, you can find out their little secrets. So, so one of the most disturbing things I've seen recently was a film by Charles Creel called People You May Know, which is about how kind of wellness apps and data from churches, from religious institutions, which is all about people unburdening their traumas, you know, their mental illnesses, addictions, onto an app that was then meant to help you, how that was then sold to political strategists. Right. Uh, actually set up by political strategists who, who kind of manipulated the churches into mm. doing all this data farming and then used that, that data data to pass the RNC. Yeah, so they know like if you've lost a relative, for example, if you've got a problem with alcoholism, they can then target messages based around, you know, really specific vulnerabilities that you have. So mm. yeah, without a doubt, it's all knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Uh, I don't, yeah, I mean, obviously, online opens up just whole new vistas of mm. of stuff. But what it also opens up is the possibility to just, you know, what's known as A/B tests. So, <laughs> so it's sometimes I don't think they know why something works. They just found it stuck. Um, so, so there's a bit of that. There's a lot of hit and miss stuff going on. Huh? Yeah.
it, like it, it might just be survivorship bias. They A-B test a million things, something sticks. They have absolutely no idea why it's stuck, but if they reproduce it, it, it gives them the, the results they were looking for. I'm sure they have a hypothesis, but yeah, I think, I think that's one of the biggest things that it does is that it lets you just test so much. If, if identity is at the root of, of all of this, as you've uh, suggested a bit, um, what do you make of this? You reflect uh, quite a lot in This Is Not Propaganda about how, as a Ukrainian who felt British, was always asked what it was like to be Russian as you grew up in England. So your identities being a little bit different was always described to you in a language that's, that suggested it was your defining characteristic. This even continued where at the conclusion of the book, people are um, speaking to you similarly along the lines of um, political Brexit context. So is there any escaping these fundamental identities? No matter how good at English you were, how in tune with football and the local culture you became, you were still the Russian, even though you were actually Ukrainian. How central to the power of disinformation, social media bots, news bias and the rest is formed by this group identity? that you just might not be able to yeah. sleep. Yeah, I think it's absolutely key. It's all about that, especially today where, I mean, if we go back into the history of propaganda, it was always about forming identities, exploiting identities and forming identities. And the propaganda is that it is strongest when old identities, class identities, work identities collapse for various reasons. And people are in flux or in need of a new identity to, to cleave to. So that's, by the way, the sort of main account of what happened in, in Germany in the 20s and 30s. Uh, that's Hannah Arendt's sort of like main theory and origin of totalitarianism, that Germany goes through this period of flux, uh, which is like the creative bit of that is the cabaret, which is this kind of like big kind of experiment of everything that you could be. So there's a freedom that comes with that. But as the old kind of ways of life, the old economies, the old sociological categories collapsed, you know, there was this chaos and, and the Nazis could step in and try to create a, a supra Nazi identity. Um, but, but we see a, a sort of a reflection of that today. Uh, it's very interesting talking to pollsters in different countries, but especially in Britain, saying how it, was, it used to be easy for them to define the nation. People were defined by their class or a bit later they were defined by their, um, by kind of their, their consumer choices. And now you just can't tell. Um, those, those things have kind of become somewhat untethered compared to before. Um, the kind of the old markers of who you were have, have become very unstable. And in this kind of goo, what every political movement tries to do is, is, is form a group identity for, for the period of a vote. It's very, it's very transactional. Um, always trying to form a new us and a new them. Um, and that's kind of the essence of what the propagandist does, try to create new political, short-term political identities. Uh, I saw it happen in Russia in the 1990s and 2000s, again, a, a country in huge flux after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, where propagandists openly said our job is to create a new idea of the masses, the majority, the Russian people, and therefore the enemies of the people. Um, so, so these identities, this identity formation is usually aggressive. It's usually exclusionary. There's like an in-group and an out-group that you define society through. So yeah, I mean, for somebody like me who exists in nuances, who's kind of Russian and yet English and yet Ukrainian, um, suddenly finding myself in an England that was, you had to be either Remain or Brexit, um, uh, was, was kind of weird, uh, partly because I thought the English were always a bit more subtle than that, but maybe they, they're just the same as the rest of the world. <laughs> I don't know where I get the idea that the English were subtle from. <laughs> 
Uh, self-promotion. James Bond movies, I suppose. I'd like to hear more about the Hannah Arendt anecdote that you just briefly mentioned. If, if, you, mm. could, if you could open up on that a, a little bit more. I'm, I'm totally unfamiliar with it, and it sounded very interesting as a, maybe a, like an identity explanation for, I suppose, the rise of Nazism. Is that what she's suggesting? Yeah, she's, she's explaining the sociological context. So basically, she's saying that's what happened in Germany kind of post-First World War in the 20s. Um, you know, there's this huge you know, collapse of the empire and the start of the Weimar Republic, but also the collapse of, of old social roles, different classes, um, you know, shift from one economy to another type of economy, all these different changes in society. And, and as people kind of lose their old stability about who they are, they're in flux. And that's the moment when, you know, they become from kind of a differentiated, uh, they become sort of um, vulnerable to being kind of turned into the mass. So the idea of Nazi propaganda was to turn people into a mass. You know, Hitler's main thing is that there are no distinctions between Germans. We are one Volksgemeinschaft. Yeah, there is no differences between us anymore. You know, the, we are just one big uh, folk. Um, mm -hmm. And then really sort of the strength and weakness of Nazi propaganda was to the extent that they could really make that work. Uh, to the extent was that, was that strong or to what extent were there kind of countercurrents pulling it apart? If if Nazism came out of this, uh, just for all of Germany, this lack of cultural identity because of how they were treated after the conclusion of World War One, can you see any equivalence in the modern day as you cast your lens out into different countries of the world? I'm not necessarily at all suggesting that it would rise into something equivalent to Nazis, but at least a country that is losing a populace of a country who are totally losing touch with what it is to be of that country. Is there any examples? I'm not sure. I'm just curious. I think, I think it's everywhere. I think that's just exactly the phase we're going through everywhere. Uh, but, but first, just to be clear, Aaron say, isn't saying it's they, because how they were treated after the First World War. It's, no. just, it's just because of the changes in society. Uh, she talks about okay. the Soviet Union being, being the same. So she's not talking about, she's not saying that it's because they were victims in any way. It was just these, mm -hmm. they couldn't deal with these changes. Um, well, that's the ground on which on which the Nazis worked. Um, so, um, yeah, we're all going. I think everyone's going through that at the moment um, due to technological change. Um, you know, whole industries are disappearing, whole certainties are disappearing, whole ways of life are disappearing, whole classes are kind of disappearing. Well, have disappeared like the last 10, 20 years. Um, so it's because of the economy, it's because of technology, it's because of media. Media used to be a way for us to understand ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and in the chaos of social media, it's almost like we can't, we struggle to reflect, to find a metaphor for ourselves on the screen. I think TV and film played a very important role in, in, in giving us these kind of archetypes through which we defined ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of collapsed in the kaleidoscope of, of, of digital media. Um, but, and everyone talks about how kind of they feel uncertain and everything feels liquid. I, I think that's everywhere. <laughs> everywhere I went to my book um, is going through different 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 moments of that um so so the comparisons with the 1930s in that sense i think are valid i mean whether trump is a nazi i, I find that a tiresome uh, a tiresome debate history mm -hmm. doesn't need to repeat itself but 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 um but that that sociological ground i think is very very similar yes and, and then then too there was you know the introduction of of new media that caused chaos you know uh, so the introduction of radio just hypercharges totalitarianisms, and people write about radio in very similar ways to how they talk about 
the internet today. First, it's greeted as this liberational force that's going to bring people together. And then they suddenly realize, like, oh, my God, the bad guys can just use this to, like, hypercharge um, aggressive identities and paranoia and kind of override critical thinking, which is exactly the debate we've had about the internet. It goes from being this sort of, like, you know, um, this deliverer of democracy to this, you know, herald of dictatorship. Um, um, so, so, so there's a, there are a lot of similarities. That doesn't mean I think Trump is a Nazi, <laughs> but the background, yes, is there are a lot of a lot of echoes, a lot of echoes, and and, and just I think that I think they're objective. I think these are objective. You know, then you know, there's, we're going through a huge a period of huge, you know, disruption. Everyone mm. recognizes. No, I don't think anyone doubts that. Um, so, so yeah, propaganda is sort of this kind of vicious propaganda is is almost like a, you know, something that arises whenever we go through these sort of, through this sort of turbulence. Um, if, if what we're going through now is sort of collectively people losing touch with their identity of what it might be to be from an Australian, a Russian, a Mexican, whatever, is that an explanation for a pretty consistent rise in populism across the world? Because the, the core of the populist message is you found your identity because you're defined by being a Brazilian, by being a Filipino, by being an American. Is is there a link there, or am I just sort of clutching at straws? A, a link, a link to what? Sorry, a link between what you've just described, how yeah. uh, people are losing touch with their identity because of the myriad cultural factors. You said even entire classes are disappearing. Is there a link yeah, between yeah. that and then the corresponding rise of populism through, you know, Austria, the Philippines, yeah, Brazil, yeah, yeah, Australia, exactly. no, Mexico, oh, completely. That's what I mean. That's what populism is in many ways. You know, it is a response to that because the old. I mean, here I'd be very, very careful and allowing the the sort of right nationalists to define nationalism. Nationalism can be very, very broad. If you look at Benedict Anderson, he's this great sociologist. His kind of definition of the imagined community uh, as a nation. He's talking about something very, very broad that that is you can join by joining this idea of a community working together for a shared aim um language is a big part of that for, 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 for a sociologist but but it's not this kind of it's the opposite of, of angry tribalism so a lot of what we i mean you would say that the nazism is the enemy of nationalism it's not it's the opposite of nationalism nationalism would have included jews who want to be german by definition that is what nationalism is so a lot of you know theories of nationalism. So 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 I, I would be very careful letting the the sort of tribalists claim nationalism, uh, because obviously they're going to destroy the nation because nations are made of different people. So that, that, that their vision will will actually be wounding for the nation as a political body, um, as we're seeing. Um, mm. But but that kind of tribalism, yeah, of course, of course. So in the panic, in the flux, you know, you cling uh, and, and you're encouraged to cling to an idea of the people, which again is defined through an opposite, through the non-people, you know, the, the, the enemies, you know, and thus in America, you have a discourse where one half of the country sees the other half of the country as somehow against America and, and <laughs> destroying America, which is ridiculous. They always say half the country is destroying America. It's absurd, but, but, um, but that's what it's become. Um, so, um, so definitely. And, and, uh, um, well, what's interesting at the moment is, is, is how lightweight and, and viscous, not viscous, liquid this kind of populism seems to be. It sort of comes together for an election, then breaks apart again, then recoagulates. Um, and that's, I think, a big difference in the 20th century where, you know, it seemed much more kind of solid. 
um, well, now it's sort of like, mm. you know, I don't know how permanent it is. Look at something like Five Star Movement in Italy that kind mm. of came together and then sort of fell apart again. Uh, I don't know how, to what extent these, you know, I think we're going to see all nonstop new populist movements. I don't think it's going to be like one and, and just sort of sticking there. I think they're going to be constantly kind of morphing and transforming uh, and reinventing themselves and, and then collapsing and then gathering up again. There's something about our age which is very fast to gather and fast to fall apart. From your understanding of history, is what you just explained, how um, using the Five Star Movement as an example, is populism today just far more reliant on that crucial leader? If populism, def by definition, needs to have a strong central leader, or if that might mm. just be a phenomenon of now. Does that question make sense? It, it sounds a bit rumbling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I, look, I think definitely in, in the classic interpretation, it, it, it definitely does need a leader. And the leader plays the, the following role. Um, the leader becomes the expression of the unconscious desires of, of the mass. So it's not that he's a leader because he's so beautiful and brave. It's a leader because he allows them to be the shits that they want to be. Is that uh, really the, the leader articulates, the leader articulates... The leader is often a narcissist and highly unpleasant because people want to be narcissistic and highly unpleasant. Is that a bit of a cynical way to look at it, though, Peter? I mean, that's, I know, cynical, whatever. Um, that's just like kind of the, the classic theory of, of the masses and the leader. Um, okay, and, okay. and it does, I mean, that's like, you know, that's why, like, for a lot of people, sort of a Trump or a Hitler is completely absurd, while, while for a lot of people, he's, they, they really. They cleave to him, even if they say that he's a shit. I mean, the point is that he's a shit because we want to be shits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's kind of like the difference between a leader in a mass movement rather than a, uh, you know, a leader in a monarchy, what the monarch is meant to be the sort of like ideal that we aspire to and all those sort of things. That's, I mean, look, that's the theory. I mean, that's the kind of the Freudian theory as well, that he's the expressor <laughs> of it. But, but looking at, you know, looking a lot of times at something like, I mean, Trump is a very good example, yeah, where, where, you know, he's behaving horribly, and that's the point. You know, he allows us to be the horrible thing that we want to be. Uh, and it's very listening in, in Russia, I remember, when, when there was a switch in Russia to much more aggressive propaganda around the time of the, the invasion of Ukraine in like 2014, they changed, they changed the presenters on TV, or they refocused on other ones. Before, they'd been these very sophisticated urbanites who were role models, yeah, and, and kind of made you feel a bit small and not very great because because they were so much better looking better looking than you and so much smarter than you and they put on these guys like Kisilov, like Salabiov, like a whole bunch of them who were just i mean they dressed like the negative negative characters in russian fairy tales all in black they're full of this vile anger they use this nasty language that russians will understand from hazing um in in the army which is a place where humiliation is kind of ritualized so they're using like the language of nastiness um, and they're legitimizing it. They're saying it's okay to be that. All the anger and nastiness and, and sadism that you feel, we're legitimizing that. So legitimizing the worst in us is, is one way of interpreting the appeal of specifically this kind of like, you know, the relationship of, of, of what we might call populism, but this kind of the masses and, and, and the leader. Um, Anyway, that's, you know, that's the theory of, of why they're tied to each other and why that bond is so hard to break. Let, let's look at one of the tools of the um, populist leader. And also correct me if it's not exclusive to a populist leader, but 
uh, it's the way they distinguish between truth and facts. And you give some examples from the book about Putin on Russian troops in Crimea, just saying they're not there when people know they're there. And then obviously there's many Trump examples, Bolsonaro examples and so forth. So could you distinguish between how the populist leader uses a tool a distinguish, to distinguish between truth and then facts? Truth and facts. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, oh, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, there's so many things involved. I mean, my sense is that this is something that's really kind of to do with our moment rather than the 1930s, is that people really don't like facts at the moment because facts basically don't tell us anything nice. They tell a lot of people that our lives are getting worse, our children will be poorer than us, uh, you know, climate's about to destroy the planet. You know, facts are just not very pleasant to people. We're not on an up and up. And, and the idea that a factual politics could deliver a happier future, which I think was the great debate of the Cold War, like communism will deliver a better future through its rational arguments, which were meant to be very scientific, we recall, uh, or democratic capitalism with its technocrats and its market economists will be able to do it. As both of those kind of systems have betrayed a lot of people, not everyone, uh, you know, if you're an urban dweller in Stockholm, probably not, but but but, but a lot of people feel, feel that they don't deliver. Mm. Then the whole kind of, you know, architecture of factual language becomes your enemy. And, and actually, facts are often unpleasant. I mean, at the end of the day, facts tell you you're going to die. So facts are not very nice. Um, and, and, and when facts stop delivering, then, then I think you get the sort of appeal of these kind of leaders who, like Bolsonaro or, or others that we could name, who basically say, fuck the facts and put a middle finger up to glum reality. And that's their appeal. I mean, uh, the philosopher Michael Lynch says what they do is not quite lying, because lying is trying to con you, Yeah. They make what he, in the classic sense of lying, you know, the, lying kind of recognizes the power of truth, you know, and tries to disguise it. Here they're doing something else. He, he defines it uh, as bald-faced lying, lying which is obviously a lie. It's not a, it's not an assertion. You know, he's mm -hmm. the example of somebody you're standing at a bus station with someone and it's raining, and the other person says, and you say, oh, it's very wet, and they say, no, it's not raining. Yeah. Uh, and obviously it is. And, and so it's, this is not a lie in the classic sense. It's like, you know, when Trump says there were more people at my at my event and you're like, no, there wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and I go, no, no, there was. And then he was he was famous for these statements and he's doing several things there. One, I think, is just saying fuck the facts, which I think gives a sort of almost, you know, a release, a sort of punk rock like middle finger to glum reality. I think there's there's something like an energy to that. Mm -hmm. Also, it's an expression of power, obviously, like, you know, I am so powerful. I will I will d deny the facts and your rights to have a hold over me, but also I'm doing it to the people that you hate. You know, I am saying I am powerful to the people that you hate, the elites, the urbanites, the whatever, um, the people that you feel are doing better than you. And so, so it's all those combination of things. So, so I think it's about that. It's about all those, you know, we're in this bald faced lying space. Um, I, I wonder whether that's actually quite unique to our age or relatively unique to our age. Um, Maybe that's what makes our age a little bit different. Um, because there was, a, there was definitely a normative aspect to communism. They would make you believe absurd things, but you were meant to actually pretend you believed them. Um, so there was a normative aspect, a kind of alternative reality that you were meant to step into, but it was meant to be consistent. Now there's no consistency. It's just you know craziness for the sake of it. 
which is dangerous in its other ways, in its own ways. It's, it's more like a, a you know, that, that, that was more like a sort of like, you know, uh, a religion, you know, with an alternative reality. We're, we're more like in this carnival um, where all the rules are upended. But carnivals can be fun for one night and they're very useful uh, for a society to have to, to show that, you know, absolute freedom is possible for one evening. But, but they also create this space where there's no law and no morals. And when the powerful are organizing a carnival all the time, they create the space where any kind of moral laws or normative judgments or evidence are, are suspended. And it's very dangerous because anything can happen, which is why, you know, carnivals are often where murder movies start or horror movies start, because it's this weird space that's exciting, but also very dangerous. So, so, so these guys are very carnivalesque, I think. Um, and that's kind of, by the way, that's reflected in their language. I know I'm going a bit of a tangent, so, so stop me. But, 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 you know, the one thing that Bolsonaro, Trump, uh, Boris Johnson, who plays at this um, very cynically, um, but also Putin, or certainly Duterte in the Philippines, what they all have in common is not so much ideology, because they can be on very different sides. At the same, you know, they can, they, they can mix and match their left and rightiness. But um, um, what they all have in common is this use of language. They are all, uh, they all love using you know, language from scatological language, language about private parts, about genitalia. I mean, Duterte would make Trump blush, but Trump is famous for breaking a lot of taboos, and Putin completely broke the taboos of Russian political language, starting to talk about, um, um, starting to talk about you know, human, human private parts and various dirty jokes on camera. Um, he, he, he was really quite revolutionary in his, in his use of political speech in Russia. And... Um, uh, and, and again, that's a big function of the carnival. The carnival is always about using this sort of language, you know, the old Saturnalias in ancient Rome, you know, you would prance around with, with huge phalluses. And again, it was a symbol of, of, of you know, the, the repressed parts of society rising to the top and having their day, and sort of the lower parts, the nether region of society rebelling against the sort of dominant brain. Um, and, and unleashing all this kind of sexual energy as well, which again, I think can be incredibly liberating and positive. But when that's manipulated by the powerful and taken over by the powerful, again, it just creates this space of, of, of dangerous lawlessness. And, and this is why you have this ridiculous, you know, this absolutely ridiculous moment in America during the Trump era where, where people who are always left wing and very anti-state were like, hoping that the FBI would restore order. Like, come on, Mr. Mueller, go and find Trump guilty we need some order we need to restore order and suddenly you had like you know the former head of the fbi being cheered on by lefties because they were just they were just desperate to to you know to stop this carnival i mean they'd always been the ones who were pushing carnival i think largely in positive ways but suddenly the carnival been weaponized by the other side and they were just terrified it was terrifying to be honest i absolutely love the way that you you see the world um, you can just tell through the way that you're speaking now and the type of connections you're making between how a carnival is the beginning of a lot of uh, horror movies. Making these connections, which I don't think someone who hasn't delved within propaganda as much, of you, as, much as you have can make those sort of connections and like making um, assumptions and inferences about the psychology of a leader and then of the masses as well. I, it's, it's just very interesting. It was just actually before uh, reading the end of the book, where you do make the link between the uh, toilet humor, as you call it, where there is some just uncomfortable quotes from like Duterte and Bolsonaro and so forth. 
and how that's like quintessential to being anti-establishment. And I guess that goes along the lines with just the big fuck you to the establishment. You say some shit that makes, um, that you know the other side can't say, because if they say it, they'll get in trouble. But if you say it, uh, you almost get a boost because of it. Yeah, and... completely. And but, but there's a lie at the center of it because they're not the not establishment. Johnson is a, you know, <laughs> Johnson's you know an Etonian, Etonian yeah. Oxford grad. Trump, yeah, he's not the DC elite, but fine. But he's obviously the establishment, you know, um, mm. uh, and so on and so forth. So so what's the, the trick here is that they're not. If they were real rebels from the ground, you know, there's something to that. But these are these are elites dressing up as the victims playing the elites it's like a double disguise mm-hmm. and and that's that's the problem they're 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 um uh you know there are elites who are who are pretending they're not an elites and 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 completely exploiting those 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 feelings totally i wonder why people can't see that they're elites because if you take boris johnson as a very classic example i mean he is he's as an elite a, a person as it gets in the united kingdom yet somehow he can still ride the anti-establishment wave like why can't people just see through that and and, and not be uh charmed by the toilet humor and the middle finger to the establishment i i think that i mean we'd have to ask them but wh- whenever i do ask people it's because the language they use is that i mean it does come back to there's something of that, you know, something of Freud's theory to that, you know, that, that it's not that they like these people, it's that these people are allowing them to be and feel and articulate the things that they've felt. Yeah. Right, right. So it's not about liking them as separate characters. These people, the leaders are not, you know, they're not something to look up to or respect. The leaders are just, you know, they're vehicles for, ex, you know, there's, some, there's something almost like shamanic, you know, uh, uh, in the way that they get to express the stuff that others want to express. And that's the bond. And that's a very deep bond. So you can even say, I can't people say this a million times. Trump is awful. He's horrible. I, don't, I hate it when he's on TV. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, I've got to take my kids out of the room. He's such an embarrassment, la, la, la. Hmm. But then like, oh, but the way he gave it to those liberals, oh, it's amazing, you know. Um, so, so, so that's what it says. So I think there is something to this theory. This is not a rational thing. You know, you can mm-hmm. have the, you can completely have those rational thoughts and see that he's a charlatan and he's, see that he's 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 all those things but he's just like you know he's just allowing you to hate the way you've always wanted to hate sure sure that you can still viscerally identify with him no matter how objectively you can see what so, so, so freud uses this word identification which isn't quite the same, the same as identify it's identification is much more it's much deeper it's really like the sort of you know psychological meld that's happening um, but yes, um, again, look, I don't know how seriously we want to take Freud. He was uh, another sort of charlatan, but it's not just him. A lot of people who try to describe this relationship have kind of come to the same mm. sort of conclusions. Um, you don't, you don't need a sort of an Oedipal theory to, to sort of mm-hmm. to see this, this connection. I just want to add one thing to what you said as well, that, um, it's craziness for no reason uh you know craziness for no reason might be extremely fun like the um the mm-hmm. the, the the joker the loki the trickster character it's 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 a yeah. source of pure thrill however you can't yeah. cap the downside to craziness for no reason whereas you can cap the downside to craziness for a certain reason and if you can't cap the downside to something you're exposing yourself to potential ruin to potential 
completely anything. Yeah, I mean, that was my kind of... I remember speculating when Brexit and Trump were happening, where this is like a moment, you know, we, we need society, or a lot of people in society need this moment of carnival release um, for many reasons. And then it'll calm down again. And, and in a way, I think... Maybe that explains the liquidity it, of the populism. Well, yeah. Well, also, but I think, I think COVID was that moment. COVID was like, okay, great, you've had your fun. Here's reality. Can you deal with it now? And I think largely, largely... That has been the case. You know, it really got to the Bolsonaro's. Duterte actually had weirdly quite a good COVID, but he has to like be not Duterte for a bit. Um, but but Putin's had a terrible one. Um, so so largely, and Trump lost his, at the end. I think probably lost the election because he mishandled it. So mm. so, so 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 you know, it's, it's all right to do all this craziness and and stick a middle finger up to reality, but then reality has a way of of biting back. What's really scary now, though, of course, is I mean, America. I mean, a huge amount of the country has made COVID an identity issue, and and actually, I say both sides of the country are doing it in a way. But but the one side is doing it in a way that's really self-destructive, mm. and it's kind of weird. I mean, like you think that you know, fun and games, but you know, the great paradox is that death is the one big reality. You know, everything might be relative apart from death well, and taxes, obviously. But um, <laughs> especially in Sweden. But um, but um. So, so death, I thought, would be the kind of the sobering thing. I think it wasn't Britain, by the way. I think COVID saw Brexit remain, divisions weaken a lot. Maybe they'll return, but I think they, they, they weakened a lot. We came, came together around the central trauma um, and, and a central enemy and a common enemy, which is the pandemic and, and a common set of heroes with the NHS. You know, the, 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 and I think that happened in most of European countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, I know we hear a lot about the anti-vaxxers, but frankly, they're, they're quite a small group. Uh, much smaller than the Brexit vote or the Remain vote. You know, we're, talk, we're mm-hmm. talking about a much more concentrated set of denialists. The scary thing in America, and I suppose in Brazil to a certain extent, but especially in America, is, um, is, is seeing how, uh, which is our conversation at the start, you know, is seeing how, how the carnival continues. And it's now like, you know, the carnival is going right through the, you know, through the plague. Um, so it's very all very medieval, isn't it? <laughs> when the, the, the battle of the carnival and the plague, um, and we'll see, uh, we'll see how it plays out. But I'm somewhat, I mean, I'm deeply worried now because I really thought that people would focus much more in the face of of such an imminent and danger, you know? hmm. but they haven't. They haven't. They're still playing these absurd absurd identity games and these absurd expressions of of rebellion against the elite in the face of you know damaging themselves it's crazy i i I wonder if that has anything to do with this um notion of the minority rule Are, are you familiar with it it's from taleb and a number of other statisticians uh, I can explain. Um, no, which is what we're so, so 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 tell me what it means. Basically, just how an inflexible minority, three to five percent of the total, can uh, win over a flexible majority. And you take some classic examples that most um, uh, soft drinks in the United Kingdom are kosher, despite the fact there being an inflexible three percent minority who actually need a kosher drink. Similar can be said with halal meat, um, peanuts on planes. And then when you put into the political realm, 
how the extremes of both parties might be far more inflexible than the majority of that same party and which could maybe explain why from your experience and from my experience anti-vaxxers might actually be a bigger proportion than they actually are like that their silhouettes might be 10 times bigger than their actual mass if that makes sense i'm just wondering i want to introduce that and ask if you if you see it when you do research throughout the world for the books in different cases of um, propaganda misinformation disinformation and so forth whether this shows up this this idea of an inflexible minority winning over a flexible majority Yes, I think that's a very good point. Yeah, something very concerted and very focused. Uh, yeah, very far. From a campaign point of view, that makes sense. Also, I, I keep on wondering what, 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 why are the Republican Party or Bitsfit or cable news networks playing into this stuff? And, and I suppose it's they see it as an exercise in group, group formation. It doesn't matter what it's about, COVID or tiddlywinks. Here is a chance to, sub, to cement a base to keep it kind of lassoed together. Um, and so you encourage it. So I think it's both ways, you know, it's both a minority, but I think also the other, from the other side, from the side of the propagandists, it's like, okay, if our job is group formation, we really don't care what the group formation is around, but as this is emerging for various reasons, let's, let's, you know, let's create an identity around this. And they, look, they do, they don't necessarily have to be anti-vax. The anti-vax can be the sort of, the side effects because what they'll say is the government weaponized or the Democrats are weaponizing COVID against Trump. The media inflated the numbers to make Trump look bad. Um, uh, and so, you know, the government is, is by over-regulating, the government is attacking your freedom. They won't, I mean, they don't, off, they don't necessarily even have to say don't do vaccines, but they'll just, they'll use all those arguments. And the consequence is, you know, people don't take vaccines. Um, so, so it's almost they don't care about the vaccine bet. They just see an opportunity to solidify a group and to keep them close to them. Um, and that, that can be the advantage they see and, and the deaths are just an unfortunate side effect. Mm. <laughs> I guess, I don't know if anybody thinks that quite that cynically, but you know, that's what it, that's what it does look like from the sure. side. <laughs> Um, I, I want to return to the book, Peter. Um, and I thought this was a, an exceptionally thought-provoking part of it. And it was the sequence with uh, Sean Hannity making a lot of noise about he how he is open about having a political leaning while his counterparts mm. at CNN are not. And this is the reason that he is trustworthy. So can you explain what you meant when you wrote, impartiality is fraudulent and all that remains is how to be more genuine? Well, that, I mean, that's his argument. Um, so, so that's very interesting. I mean, like, it's very interesting to even, even take a step back because a, lo a lot of the time we go, well, you know, critical thinking is the way out of um, the problems of propaganda. If only people thought critically. But, but if you take what a lot of the propagandists do, the very aggressive ones, the, 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 the Putin ones, the right-wing ones in America, they're actually very good at, at thinking critically. And they will take, you know, a piece of, you know, reporting from the BBC or from CBS, uh, and they'll dissect it very effectively. You know, I say, look, here's all the biases, you know, look, here's all the biases and the agendas they set, how they frame these issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think at that point is a big rant that he gave about how, um, how CBS were, how much they were nice to Obama and how often they were horrible to Trump. And it was all very like, you know, it was, you know, very well analyzed in a way. 
Mm -hmm. But his answer at the end of this is not that, oh, so let's have real objectivity. His answer then is, look, all objectivity is rubbish. You know, people who are telling you they're objective, they're not objective. All of that truth, evidence-based world is nonsense. So all that's left is kind of saving America, us versus them, and stuff like that, uh, and emotion. So, so it's, it's very interesting uh, the, the way kind of critical thinking gets weaponized and then obviously then transitions into conspiracy thinking, which is kind of also kind of starts off with being critical thinking, you know, critical you know, conspiracy thinking arts of being starts of being skeptical and then ends up with believing gobbledygook. Um, but it's, you know, that's, that's, it, it's an interesting arc uh, and it's an interesting progress. And, and, um, uh, and, and he would use a lot of, both Hannity and, and also the, the Russians and now the Chinese will use a lot of the tropes of sort of 1960s postmodernism and and uh, which made I think a lot of valid arguments about sort of objective uh, objective truth or objective mm. narratives. Everything's actually, being very actually contextual. Yeah, or the famous feminist sort of you know slogan that you know objectivity is just male subjectivity. There's there's a lot to that. But of course, in the 60s, most of these critics were saying we need better objectivity, you know, we need better, uh, we need more rights, you know, more equal, uh, more equality, um, but, you know, more enlightenment, you know, it wasn't a rejection of the whole enlightenment ideal, it was like we need more of it, uh, while, while Hannity's saying, no, 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 the whole rational discourse needs to be put in the bin, and, and what we need is just this sort of space of... of um, you know, it's a very apocalyptical space actually that he that he inhabits. It's like America is dying. It's either a case of saving it or not saving it. You know, um, and and that well, that sort of language that gets people out to vote. Um, and both sides use it a lot in America, to be honest. Mm. Uh, but um, um, but so so so, so it's very interesting. Um, and um, yeah, and, and and I suppose the problem with it, apart from it, I think it's in very bad faith. Is that it, it really gets the vulnerability of, of democracy. Because democracy is quite good at actually pushing back against authoritarianism and totalitarianism. And where we have quite strong social muscles for that. Um, however, we're very vulnerable to narratives that say, but we're just being more democratic. Are there, you know, there's lots of truths, you know, uh, there's multiple versions. Um, why, why can't you compare a conspiracy theory to a, a scientific theory? Um, isn't that democracy? Isn't that freedom? Yeah. Yeah. It kind of it's the inbuilt vulnerability of pluralism is that it can pluralize to the to the point of absurdity, and and that's what they're taking advantage of, um, and um, and they're using the language of liberalism in many ways, certainly often literally the language of progressivism to destroy it, um, and it's hard to find an answer to it because you know. Um, because the answers then become quite authoritarian. Like, we've got to censor them. <laughs> and they're like, well, that's authoritarianism. And then we're just, you know, in the situation we are now in so many of our debates. It sounds like um, by Hannity making the claim that there actually is no such thing as objectivity, everyone's got a side, it reinforces the binary lines and the binary language that gets to the point where you have take the United States as the example, half the country thinking the other half is just stupid, wrong, impossible. How do they get to that situation? You can think of all of it as, you know, small dominoes that contribute to that. Completely. 
Completely. And, and the question for me is now, I think everyone now recognizes the situation. I mean, it's just so we're also aware of it now. But the question is, what happens next? And whenever I ask Americans, well, are you, uh, you know, I hear the complaints from both sides. What's, uh, you know, what's going on about the other side and how they're all poisoning the country? And I'm like, hey, are you guys ever going to be able to get together? And, and I get a lot of silence. I get a lot of silence. I don't get any, nobody wants to say no. We won't mm. be able to, but nobody can say yes. And and um, yeah, I mean, this is not a. I really thought it would calm. I mean, maybe I was naive. I really thought it would calm down because of COVID. I thought COVID would be the unifying thing for America, but I was wrong. I think it has been for a lot of other countries. I don't think it's yeah, but there, but there there were just so many new narrative arcs that came out of COVID, right? It it it, it maybe it wasn't as as deathly and dangerous as it needed to be to join everyone together but then maybe the other side of the coin is if it was more deathly and dangerous it might have even driven those narrative arcs even further because i mean if, if i'm thinking about covid one of the central um conspiratorial or at least you know big questions that come out of it is was it engineered uh you know was this purposeful was what's china's hand in all of this you know and if it was more dangerous i think those same arguments would be um said with a lot more bravado like it would right so um i don't know if that helps with what you're thinking but yeah i uh, i think i think yeah but you can have those things about china and still sort of all agree that we've got to sort of like listen to our doctors and take medicine so so you know we can, we can you can have the various origin stories um and i don't see why that would necessarily enhance polarization inside the country Mm. Um, but it has, it has, <laughs> but it's an American thing though. It hasn't in other places. I, I mean, I really just see which countries it has. Um, I think things are bad in, 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 um, I think things are bad in, um, in Brazil as well. Uh, I don't know. I just haven't followed the story. I think, I think generally it has brought the country, countries together, you know, um, compared to where we were, um, you know, a couple of years ago. Well, um, it's interesting you ask, is it similar in other countries? Um, Because from my very casual perusal of things, I would say like America doesn't stand alone in its sort of as an outlier example of divisiveness down the middle, uh, sort of 50-50. I was in Mexico earlier in the year uh, for a wedding, speaking with my mate, Mm -hmm. driving back from Veracruz into Puebla. And he was, um, you know, he hates AMLO, hates him. Mm. and was so hard fervently i'm completely lost for any sort of descriptive language it's 10 30 p.m but um he was so against him that he was saying that it was so bad that if he got re-elected there was a local election it wasn't even the national election there was a no a local election and the, this guy got elected it meant that amlo had more power for xyz whatever that he would just straight up leave and go to america and at this wedding, um, you know, they took every opportunity they can to talk shit about AMLO. And the sense was kind of mutual among them all. They, they were prepared to leave their country because it would be so bad. And I thought, this, this, this has to be too dramatic. You know, they have to be over-dramatizing how bad the situation is. And then on the other side of the coin, um, people absolutely love AMLO. So if I take Mexico as just a small, biased, anecdotal example, I, I think those um divisive lines can be can be can be told in other countries uh, as as well i mean you you have an entire chapter on mexico in this is not propaganda so perhaps you have mm. an insight into this as well 
I mean, less than you, I think. I mean, I, I, mine was really just talking to this kind of expert in in sort of digital digital campaigns, I guess. Um, but yeah, no. But it, to be honest, I think I think if if there's one bit of the world that that is, has had this kind of divisive stuff for a long time, it's Latin America, and we could well all be becoming more Latin American by the day. And when we think about the future of the thing once known as the West, and then mm. it could well be that we should look towards towards Mexico and Buenos Aires as as where we're all headed to. Uh, a friend of mine going, look, this happens in Latin America all the time. The populist wins. He gets four years. He messes up. Somebody normal comes. They're weak. Then the populist comes in. This is normal, and life goes on. So, so, so it could well be that that we have much. You know, I'm yeah. feeling really apocalyptical yeah. as I look at the American experiment, kind of like, just like eat itself up. But um, it could just be that, you know, we're just going to be Argentina forever. <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe, maybe that could be the way of it. I mean, it was so bad for these guys that they were talking about uh, voting for PRI in the next election. And PRI is famously the most corrupt political party in the country's history. And Amelie was supposed mm. to be the escape from PRI. And it's like they're going back to it. He is PRI. He is. Come on. He is. They're all PRI. That's the thing in, in New Mexico. Everyone's PRI deep down. It's all pre-babies. I mean, Amlo was a pre-person all his life, and then he kind of left in the 80s or something. But, um, so I don't know. I don't know. I remember talking to Mexicans. They're like, oh, it's Amlo's turn. And then, the sense is that he's just, uh, his rhetoric is very anti-establishment, but he's completely establishment. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I, 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 my, a lot of my friends are very worried about what's going on as well. Yeah. Because of the attacks on, on civil society and on media, and, you know, those are structural attacks. Um, the people who seemed very chilled out were the were the neoliberal elites. They were like, "Yeah, whatever. He won't really touch us." <laughs> yeah, because they they get the they, they get the grease the palms. Well, they just they just yeah, they just didn't, they didn't take yeah. his rhetoric seriously. Um, again, to return to the book, um, along similar lines to the distinction between truth and facts, there's also a very important distinction between facts and narrative. So, um, mm. this is a quote from the book: "Facts didn't save Aleppo." perhaps telling stories was more powerful. And this was in the context of the white helmets. The notion that narrative yeah. is everything is a recurring message through the book. The story of these white helmets saving people mattered more than a fact or statistic, which actually held more weight. And it reminded me of the infamous Stalin quote that one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. Character cannot mm. shine through a million deaths, but it is everything in one. Whereas emotion doesn't carry as much through the report of a bombing a video of someone volunteering and saving a life out of the rubble is everything. Um, so mm. this is at the core at, uh, of the effect of propaganda. At the end of the day, the right facts might not win. It will in fact be the best story. And I wanted to ask you, is there any escaping that reality? So it's funny, I'm actually just writing about this now. So, but, but it didn't work in Aleppo. That's the thing. They, they, they did have the facts and then they did tell the stories and no one, no one cared. Uh, or they care for two seconds, but but I do think it is about lack of story. I think look, the gassing of a child in Aleppo by um, through chlorine bombs or, or or other chemical illegal chemical chemical weapons, or what's happening now in Belarus or in Burma or in Sri Lanka or in Yemen. You know, we have more information and also more stories than ever before about crimes against humanity, much more than in the 20th century. What's lacking for those stories to have meaning, though, those small stories, they need to be part of a bigger story. And that's what's disappeared. I think that's why we're having so much trouble having sustained attention, let alone action. And I think in the 20th century and the early 21st, 
they were part of a bigger story, which was the bigger, the struggle of democracy against dictatorship, you know, battle for the soul of history, you know, all, all these things. So, so, so in the Cold War, like the story of one dissident in the Soviet Union could have meaning, you know, because it was part of a larger story. Uh, and that larger story has disappeared. That sense that we're in this kind of big battle that we're all part of and that gives meaning to us in democracies, yeah, and gives meaning to democratic activists. Um, there's such a sporadic battle somewhere that is part of you know, the waves of democratization, which political scientists would speak of. So this whole sense that, that, that there is that we're all part of a bigger historical process, which has meaning, which gives us meaning, which gives us self-worth, which has institutions, that has completely collapsed. And that is so. So the more it doesn't matter how many little stories you throw at it, they will never, they will never be remembered. It's it's very funny. We talk about memory. Um, uh, memory is something to have memory. We know that from you know trying to do memory games. You know, you, you turn it into a story in your head. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's the way you memorize you yeah. know, very very long you know, number sequences. Yeah, that's that's what any memory plus any memory kind of. Uh, exercise person will tell you that turn it into a story and and we can't remember these things you know it's incredible you know this these things are happening you know crimes against humanity are happening all the time in front of our eyes live streamed half the fucking time and and people of course are shocked when they see the images they say this is dreadful it's horrible it's not as well we're heartless but they don't become this big story and that's what's gone and i don't don't know if that's coming back so so look no my friends in syria who i who i who i i mean they're amazing. And, and look, there are small victories you can win along the way, but, but overall it didn't. It was just, it was just this black hole. Syria mm-hmm. was just this black hole and with no redemption. You know, we're now scrambling for redemption by trying to like, sue some torturers who ended up in Germany and take them to court to have some sort of justice. But it's, you know, in Aleppo, we're kind of like all the stuff that was meant to be a crime was made normal. And and it happened in front of our eyes in real time. There's something we didn't know, like everyone knew. Mm. Um, and it's happening now in Yemen, and it's happening now in Burma, and it's it's playing all happening in Belarus in the middle of Europe. And everyone's like, what, whatever. Um, and it's and and the whatever is 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 because it's not part of a larger narrative. Mm. And, and and I don't think it's coming back. By the way, I, I don't think there's any way back. I don't think there's any way back because of historical reasons, because of many big mistakes. Um, and also because of the nature of media today it means that I think that narrative happened when there was like 10 books that we had to read, which were decided by 10 wise men. And you had to read Solzhenitsyn and the diary of Anne Frank and I don't know, um, William Baldwin and, and not William Baldwin, um, James Baldwin. Uh, and, and you had to read all these great writers who were, you know, they were the canon about injustice and racism and totalitarianism and and Primo Levi and you know that's what informed your worldview and we watched five TV channels which were endlessly telling the story yeah, they were yeah, right, telling, right. telling the story of the battle of democracy against dictatorship mm-hmm. and and that's all fallen apart so there's nowhere even for that coherent narrative to be um, and the real puzzle is because we can't give up uh, the real puzzle is how do you make it meaningful how do you make what's happening in all around us meaningful mm. and it's going to be really tough i thought maybe some people thought that biden would come in yeah there's so much competition for your emotion now i mean there's so many stories that you can give your attention to otherwise perhaps 
I mean, yeah, there's that as well. The but, but there's like it. 20 humanitarian disasters around. It's like, God damn it, I can't give attention to all of them. And so it sort of liquidates them all to just being, well, I can't do anything about it. But, but, but the way you organize that is, is by making it into a story. That's why we organize reality. Look, reality, look, this is not a new thing. I mean, Walter Lippmann is writing about this at the start of the 20th century. People cannot deal with reality. It's too chaotic. Yeah. Mm. And therefore, people need, you know, newspapers, whatever culture to give them a story. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. It could be that's how we make sense of reality. That's how we, 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 we make ourselves into actors in it. And that, like, I don't think that's a good or bad thing. That's just a thing. Um, but, but yes, we've had this kind of collapse around that. Mm. And part of that, is, yeah, a lot of that, is, atten- a lot of that is, is the nature of the technology, as you say. Um, but there's other things as well, which kind of my book is really about, about the other things that went wrong. And um, so the question sort of becomes... What is storytelling in this world? Um, and how do you tell stories about this that have meaning, which, which feed into a larger, um, a larger way of making sense of the world and taking action in it? Um, and um, the one thing that, you know, what, what, what these populists do that we've talked about, or maybe calling them populists is the wrong word, but whatever, we'll use that shorthand, is they're very good at kind of making sense of the world. Trump's talent, and it is a talent of sorts, was to reduce the world to a sort of a, 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 gr- a grotesque comic strip. I mean, even mm-hmm. think about like the language he used, like mm-hmm. little Marco, v- nasty Hillary. Mm-hmm. It's out of a cartoon. You know, he reduces life to a cartoon. Yeah. And, and that's a gift. You know, that's the, he, suddenly the world makes sense again. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's a very cruel sense, yeah, because he, he's obviously mm-hmm. not doing humanitarian storytelling. Mm-hmm. But at least he explains it again. And it has a shape and a coherence and you can fit stuff into it. And obviously what we've completely failed in, the storytellers of democracy, after, after being the most powerful storytellers for a long time, uh, you know, really like the story that it's history is the fight of, you know, rights, human rights and the little guy against, against, against oppression. I mean, that's a very powerful story. But we've kind of lost the ability to tell that mm. and, and lost our own faith in it. And maybe it became a myth, maybe it became a set of cliches. Um, and we kind of have to start again. Um, and you know, that's pretty humbling. Um, but yeah. What, what do you make of this in line with the, uh, crux or the core of what you just said that we don't have the bigger narrative for us to then map over the top of these smaller humanitarian disasters mm-hmm. for us to care about them. One humanitarian disaster you didn't list off there was the, um, uh, re-education of the Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang province of China, which, uh, think maybe you could agree is one that a lot of attention is given to and perhaps in line with your theory a lot of attention is given to it because it is well suited in this bigger narrative of china and the like sort of thucydian threat of china potentially threatening the united states right so because the that humanitarian disaster is wrapped up into the bigger narrative of china perhaps that's why it's more well known because you mentioned um, belarus there and I admit, I have no idea what you're even referring to. So um, that's, you know, that's that's terrible, right? It's, it's in Europe. It's a couple thousand kilometers. Yeah, it's very right near now. where you're sitting if you're in Stockholm. It's down the road from where you are. So could you explain, could you first comment on whether there's any anything going on there with my theory of China that I just said? And also explain what is happening in Belarus, please. Sure. I mean, look, in China, I mean, that's what the, that's the American 
you know, there's an attempt to do that. There's like an attempt to go, look, look what's going on, especially America. You know, there's always been an ability for geopolitical powers to, you know, highlight attention to some things over others in line with their interests. And obviously, you know, as America and China lock whatever, lock their four locks, um, they are going to be, um, they are going, uh, you know, America is very keen to, to highlight these things. But others have highlighted them as well. I mean, it's, 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 it's an abomination. What's so interesting is that, that even though there's bits in the American administration that want China to be an organizing principle, it's not really working. Uh, you have John Kerry going to China all the time, saying we need to get China on board because climate is the organizing principle and we need to get China on board. Forget about this human rights nonsense. Climate is the big thing. We can't, I mean, it's all about the breakdown of narrative. We can't agree what it is. Even the realists can't agree what it is, sure. um, let alone the human rights people. So, so, so you've got an administration in America where, where different bits are doing different things. Jake Sullivan's doing one thing at the NS, the National Security Council. Kerry, the climate envoy who's very powerful, probably has much more of Biden's ear than anyone else. He's doing something else. There's another guy at the State Department who, you know, the head of it, basically, uh, who thinks about just building alliances for the sake of alliances, like, let's strengthen NATO, like, but nobody can understand why. It's almost like, let's do the, 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 the motions without meaning. So you have complete confusion, and that's why they're struggling so much to articulate what they want. And then Biden comes out and says, oh, we think human rights is the most important thing. And just like, and the evidence being. Uh, so so it's, it's, they can't organize it. And then, of course, I mean, America's at sixes and sevens. Europe's position increasingly is that they want to be neutral in the fight between America and China. And whenever you hear about a country being neutral, Sweden should know about this very well. It's actually being amoral. Yeah? Neutrality is usually the excuse for making money out of in partnership with dictatorships, as Sweden did in World War II. And, and, and thus produces these great dark crime thrillers to kind of psychoanalyze itself afterwards. But, um, um, you see what I mean the, with um, your worldview, um, the way that you're making these connections? <laughs> I really love that. Well, uh, yeah, maybe I'm just going too fast. But, but listen, so, so the horrific thing was, was Volkswagen, um, a car manufacturer created by the Nazis that made its first money from the slave labor of concentration camp inmates, which has a huge factory in the bit of China where the today's slave labor camps are going, oh, well, we, we, you know, basically saying it was bizarre. It's so bizarre. I actually reread their statement the other day. They said, um, we're really concerned about this because of our history. So they kind of, they, they take their history into account. <laughs> and then they say, but we can't tell if there's any people from the slave labor camps working in our factories. So like the people mm-hmm. were like, so, so they might be they're like, they might be, we just don't know. So right. it's okay. <laughs> you know, we don't know. So it's okay. It's like, and, and of course, the brutal reality is that the Chinese said you have to have a factory here if mm. you want to work here, because, you know, the, the aim, that could be an economic reason for that, but also the aim is, of course, always to break and make people complicit. Um, but when you have a Europe and a Germany, because Germany is Europe, essentially, when it comes to big decisions, um, that is essentially saying, fuck the 20th century. It doesn't matter anymore. We've paid our dues. We're now back in the real business of, of big money and big politics. And yes, that means human rights can, can take a hike. Um, that means that the impetus and the energy and the moral magnets, which the Second World War gave to the rest of the democratization narrative, it's always sort of founded in World War II, that's when, after which the, the UN declarations of human rights are created. 
you know, that's the kind of the founding trauma that all the other kind of bits and bobs kind of feed off from. That means that that magnet is is fading in its power. Mm. Uh, there's a lovely book by Robert Manasseh, an Austrian author called The Capital, which is a satire of Brussels today. It's a good book. He's a very clever writer. Um, but essentially about that, it's about Brussels and people working in the EU who don't remember why it was founded. They just don't remember why they're there. They're just going through these motions. They're playing these bureaucratic games. They're moving money That's around. They, they don't remember. I mean, they do remember. They're not stupid. But as in like that impetus that this was created to overcome the, the tragedies of totalitarianism has been forgotten. Yeah. And, and they just don't actually know why they're there. Mm-hmm. And it's very powerful. It's very funny and, and a very good book. And, and kind of not, you know, it's subtle. It's not, it's not, like, it's not like some sort of rant. But, um, um, and it's tragic. And it's sympathetic to the characters. It's not, it's not being, you know, it's not. It's not Amazing. It's not, One more time, what's it called? It, it, yeah. It's, it's a very famous book. It's called uh, The Capital, as in The Capital City, by, by mm-hmm. Robert Manasseh, who's a very famous Austrian writer. And it, it's, 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 yeah, it's translated into English. It was, it was a big book like a couple of years ago. It was, it was a big novel. Cool. To quickly comment on what's happening in Belarus to educate. Oh, sure. So audience. Belarus, for a long time, as, as um, I mean, I don't know where to start. So Be- Belarus is a country uh, in between uh, Russia, Poland, sort of Lithuania. And so on the western edge of Russia and the eastern edge of the EU, um, it's always been, it's been a country that was nicknamed the last dictatorship in Europe for a long time. It had an authoritarian leader who was you know, a bit like the ones we've been talking about today, kind of comedic and post-truthy, but very kind of progressive. But it kind of like, it was sort of a mild-ish dictatorship in the sense there was only some political prisoners and you could always leave before this broke. And then... Uh, and there was this sort of sense that the Belarusians were, were very passive and accepted this. And then, or the vast majority, and then there was sort of, he rigged the last election, he rigs the elections every time, but this time he did it particularly badly. And, and the whole country rose up. I mean, the whole country rose up. There was huge street protests for, 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 for over a year. It looked certain that he would fall, mm. um, but he didn't, largely because Putin decided to support him. The security forces didn't betray him. Uh, which is what you need in a revolution. Um, and, and instead, there's just been this huge wave of repressions with um, arrests every day, torture every day. I mean, it's gone from being kind of soft postmodern authoritarianism to being a dictatorship, dictatorship. And, and one of the most outrageous things that he did, which, which again, I thought would have more resonance, um, a Ryanair, so a commercial flight, was flying over Belarusian airspace, and he set up one of his fighter jets and MiG and ordered the plane to come down. And the reason he did that was that there was somebody on board who was a journalist, an exiled Belarusian journalist who lived in Lithuania. He pulled him off and his girlfriend off, let the plane go again. And then the next day, the guy wasn't kind of on TV confessing that he betrayed the nation and torture marks on his hands. So like real Moscow show trial stuff from the 1930s. And, you know, there was outrage for, I think, two hours. Um, and, and everybody said this is a hijacking and a terrorist act. And I think there was, uh, he was punished. He was punished. I mean, um, the state Belarusian airline couldn't fly to European capitals anymore. But, but as Lukashenko was trying to stop any of his people traveling abroad, I don't think he thought that was so, so bad. Um, so um, that, that's, and then everyone forgot about it. And, you know, there's some mild sanctions on him, but you know, he gets around them very easily. 
Um, but as you know, again, it just these things happen, and obviously people are outraged for a moment. Mm. But for all those little moments to add up into something, they have to be part of a greater story. You do exactly, and 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 that's gone. That's gone, and so you have all these things happening, and they never add up into a bigger picture. Let alone action. I mean, action was always hard to take, you know. But at least there was pressure. There was sustained. It fed into. It's a narrative plus our own identity. You know, mm-hmm. we like to identify ourselves in democracies as we live in democracies and we're fighting, we're on a historical mission, we're fighting the bad guys in the world. You know, all that's gone. And it's gone for many reasons that I think are ob- maybe obvious or not so obvious, but but um, um, I don't know, it's really hard. I have all my friends in Belarus writing to me all the time going, Peter, write something, do something. People are forgetting about us. And oh. I kind of go, I don't understand how we write. To, well, apart from the oh, which is the main thing. The kind Good of way to make pain. someone feel guilty. But, uh, well, they're not. They're just desperate. Before it was Syrians coming to one with, coming to me or, or to human rights activists of like, here's the evidence. Here's like, you know, here's a whole terabyte of war crimes that we're giving you. Go and do something with it. Yeah. And it's just like, well, it's published. No one, nothing happens. And no one, it's not even, even that politicians don't do stuff. Politicians always face difficult decisions. There's no outrage on the streets. You know, where are the millions of people? Where's the, you know, where's the, where's the, where's the, just even the sense of outrage. Right. It's just gone. Right. And I think that was because it was part of something much bigger. And and I'd, I just don't know how you write about it. I don't know how one, you know, tries to, um, I don't know how one writes about it. And I don't know how one, how one does something meaningful. Um, but we have to work out how, because we can't give up. Yeah, geez. I mean, it's uh, it, it can be maybe a bit of a um, depressing, too much, too hyperbolic, but opaque. It can be like a, a tough. It can be a shade of black. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, out- outlook thinking about well, how do I, how do I generate some sort of interest or reaction or outrage to this issue and and you know whether it's yourself having to field these messages from your friends um and and after you might publish something and then you just turn around and you know people have absolutely forgotten and what is on top of the news is some some bs but like you say here's a terabyte of war crimes please let's let's solve this issue and 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 i suppose it gets kicked down the road and small handful of people in the world will actually know what goes on. Even smaller handful will be able to do anything about it. And even smaller handful will give a crap. And that's like, uh, yeah, that, that is a, that is a bad shade of black outlook into the world. What's the word I'm looking for there? Not opaque. I, th- I think, I think you feel very well. Um, shade of black is, is pretty accurate. Um, Peter, uh, to make a rather awkward transition, but I am conscious of the time and I uh, don't want to take advantage of your goodwill. So I have some mm. fun questions from a wonderfully exciting chapter of your life, which was um, uh, moving to, living in, and then writing a book about Russia with one of the greatest titles for a book ever, second only to Christopher Hitchens' book about Mother Teresa, The Missionary Position. Uh, it's mm. Russia. Um where nothing is true and everything is possible. Amazing title. So this is a question from my mother-in-law, who was probably your biggest fan in Sweden. She got her daughter into your work. And then because my uh, girlfriend, her daughter is a complete Russia file. And then um, that's how I got into it. So, and she wanted to hear what you thought about creativity under constant self-censorship 
And she adds that Russians use a great deal of irony and wanted to hear what you thought about that. Oh, completely. I mean, like the way you, I think Eastern Europeans generally survive by having a very dark sense of humor. I think that's just the only way. It's very interesting that, the, again, it's not just Russians, throughout the region, um, how they love slapstick there. So it's really interesting, even Roman Polanski's early films, uh, the Polish director, are all slapstick movies, like silly slapstick movies. And in Eastern Europe, like people like Norman Wisdom, who, who, who your mother might know, are, are, are like huge stars. Mother-in-law, sorry, are, are huge stars. So it's these kind of like, what we would see as silly slapstick, they almost see as sort of metaphysical because life is like that. Life treats you that way. That's hilarious. And my father, it? who's, it's, it's relatable. Know, they just see, slapstick is relatable. <laughs> Well, the whole thing about clowns, the whole like this cult of the clown in, in the Soviet circus was really about that. It's like he gets up, he's hit. But we all have that. That's why clowns and Charlie Chaplin is popular. But there is like it's 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 so prevalent. Um, and this sort of like absurdist humor that like you're walking along the street and, you know, you know, a pot plant falls on your head or the KGB falls on your head. And and that kind of, you know, it's a very, very dark humor is definitely how you deal just with the with a lack of logic to the cruelty. It's so cruel mm. and it's so nasty and it's so random mm. that um, the only way you, 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 you try to have a cathartic experience is, is through humor. So it goes, you know, humor plays a huge role in many societies, but Eastern European humor is, is, has, uh, really carries with it the, 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 the slapstick of, of, of terror. <laughs> what, what about, um her comment on creativity under constant self-censorship because obviously Russia is famous for having the most brilliant authors. Um, I guess not yeah. all of it came out of self-censorship, but if you think of The Master and Margarita, that's a yeah. cruel, absurd, but also funny book that came out of the Soviet Union through self-censorship, if that's like the archetypal example. Yeah, but that was just censorship, censorship. He, he couldn't publish it. <laughs> that was why self-censorship, <laughs> that was just censorship. Yeah. Um, but you're right that there is something. But look, I, there are great writers in democracies as well. So I, I never, you know, so so I don't think that's a precondition. I just think talent in different conditions um, um, will will express itself. So I think Shalamov would have, would have been a great writer even without the Gulag, but he ended up in the Gulag. So he wrote great stories about the Gulag. Um, you know, I think whatever. Uh, all these people would have been very talented without the horrors that they experienced and without the self-censorship, they would have flourished perfectly well somewhere else. So I don't think it's it's that. Um, I do think what gives Russian literature some of its uniqueness, though, is the meeting of a really brutal political culture, which, which is just really, really brutal, and then a very, very sophisticated intellectual culture. So you have the ability, you have a class who's able to describe the depths, the almost daily and continuing depths of evil. A lot of places where evil happens and evil happens everywhere, but there's less of an educated class. And that's just got to do with Russia's history and being on the edge of Europe and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's that unique combination of kind of lawlessness and cruelty and the ability to write about it, so and and detail it, so that gives it a kind of something that we have less of an of a literature from Cambodia. You know, there are some great books from 
there's some great writers from Cambodia, but they're, they're just, you know, historically it was harder for them to produce this kind of consistent, very, very high level of, of you know, essentially bourgeois, even in the communist system writers, you know, who, who had the leisure and the, the, the space and the ability and the creature comforts and the social arrangements to be able to write. Um, and and write very well. So so that's what makes it unique: the ability to observe horror at close range, and then having the technical ability to write about it. And when we we have it in the West, when there's a war, you know, we suddenly have all these great war novels. But but most of the time, life we export horror even in the West, while in Russia it's domestic. Hmm. Churchill writes. Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, but then goes on to say in different contexts that I am convinced that there is nothing they admire so much as strength, and there is nothing for which they have less respect for than weakness. How does your experience in this magnificent country map onto the way that Churchill has put it there? So I think it's one of the overused and stupidest quotes ever about Russia. It's a mystery wrapped in enigma. I think it's just like Churchill overwrites quite often, and that's just like, hey, what does that mean? Just like, just because you haven't spent much time there and haven't figured it out. I mean, it's actually bursting full of self-explanation and meaning, and and I just, I just don't know. I just don't know what he's talking about. Um, uh, the stuff about they respect force, yes, they do, but so do many others. I don't think that's like the thing that defines them. That's very, very common in, in lots of cultures, and yeah, they do. It, it is very much about being big and strong. It's very much about being feared rather than loved. If you're a leader, or where, rather, fear and love are deeply interlinked. So all that all that stuff is absolutely true, and and you know any Russian dissident will tell you that. Like, stop trying to negotiate with Putin. Show him, show him your muscle, and that's that's probably true. But it's the same with a lot of others. That's not unique. Um, uh, the the thing that, that Churchill I think is particularly stupid on is that beneath the is that the quote where he says it's a riddle wrapped in enigma, but at the centre of it is just a national interest. It's hard to think of a country that is more suicidal than Russia. Okay. <laughs> you know, the idea that it's driven by a rational national interest is just nuts. It's a country on, with a, a real, a real. Well, it's a, it's it's based around. It's a suicidal country. It's got the highest rates of self destruction that we've seen. Uh, you know, the gulag is an act of self barbarism. Uh, they're now going through an act of self barbarism. They keep on undermining their own interest by you know, bizarre foreign adventures that make their neighbors hate them. Um, and and you know, its literature is about self destruction. Its literature is obsessed with self destruction. Um, with suicidal impulse. So, so it's, you know, the idea that it's governed by a rational national interest just, just doesn't, you know, the, the, all the historical evidence points in exactly the opposite direction. Uh, it's, the country, it's a country with a sort of a bizarre addiction to self-sabotaging. Um, and look, you can think about that historically. You don't even need to sort of psychoanalyze it. I mean, the main idea of Russian history that it colonizes itself, that because it was colonized by the Tatar Mongols and the early... Russian leadership kind of aped the Tatar Mongols, uh, like a lot of post-colonial countries that ended up colonizing itself. Yeah, you have this, a lot of post-colonial countries where the elites, instead of being for the people, replicate the former masters and end up, you know, sort of hating their own country and, 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 and victimizing their own country. So the idea that Russia is a country that colonizes itself is an idea that's already formulated by its great historian of the 19th century, Kluchevsky, who was like the historian kind of make sense of Russia for the first time. So it's not a new idea. Uh, it's been elaborated on a lot by people like Alexander Etkind, um, and it's very present throughout Russian literature and politics. So, so that would, you know, that's the historical explanation. It's that it's a country whose ruling elite 
always sees the country that it's in as one that needs to be destroyed, broken, victimized, killed, murdered, and it's constantly replicating that original uh, um, system that started with with, with the Tatar Mongols. Um, so, so it's kind of trapped within its own, both an empire, but that is constantly colonizing itself. I mean, that's the kind of historical explanation, but, you know, that's one explanation. Uh, but the idea that kind of suicide and self-destruction haunts the Russian experience is, you know, the great theme of Dostoevsky and, and, mm. and to a great extent Tolstoy as well. That that was uh, such a entertaining answer, though. Doesn't the like a hyperbolic suggestion you're making there that they are inherently self-destructive? Doesn't that almost feed into his idea that they are an enigma? And I know you just said it's a stupid quote and it doesn't map onto them at all, but like th there is such a romanticization to the Russian people and the Russian culture. You say like um, that their um, uh, their love for strength and fear of weakness is similar for most cultures. That might be true, but. Is, is it not true that it's specifically so for Russia and the fact that it is more so than others in these traits that a lot of people might have that that, that like creates this romanticization that people have for Russia and this this awe. I mean, they, you know, they they're in many senses of a, a caricature nation. Right. And but then you dig in a bit and they're like a fascinating nation. And then you like meet a couple of Russians and you realize they're all over the spectrum. I don't know. Maybe it's just the extremes are more. Um, you, you feel the extremes more from the Russian experience than you might from, say, the Swedish experience or, dare I say, the Australian experience. I'm not sure. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Oh, no, it could be. That's why we're all so addicted to it. That's why we go there and why we have these wild times there and why my Russian friends get so bored in the West. They're, just, they're like, like, we're not feeling anything. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, you could say that's an abnormality born out of, like, the madness of, of the life there and the history yeah. and these, you know, very extreme lives, extreme weather, extreme politics, extreme depression followed by elation extreme drinking you know even 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 that culture is very very extreme yeah uh you know the, 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 it's not mellow entertainment you you go on you know it's, it's very intense um and my Russian friends get very very bored of that um so so yeah there's that there's that but none of that is mysterious or i mean what i didn't like the mystery wraps around the enigma is just a little bit it's just purple prose doesn't mean anything but then, then Churchill's thing goes, well, at the heart of it is its national interest. It's like, no, it's not. It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I find all nations are mysterious. You know, uh, I find, you know who I find really mysterious? Sweet. That's who I find very mysterious. Yeah. That's who I find so, of course. Is I mean, I, I, and, and, <laughs> um, I just find the Swedes very mysterious because on the one hand, you know, stolid social democracy was stolid, whatever. Set, settled country then you scratch it and you realize my god this country industrialized very late you know, it's a country that's sort of like you know where where um in some ways some sort of pagan and almost sorcerish instincts go very deep and it's a country with this deeply eccentric and kooky sense of humor um and so sweden first presents itself as this sort of paragon of rationality and then you dig in like oh my god it's so and it's it's I, I visit a lot or I visit a lot when when it's possible, and and I just was always beguiled by it, um, and this this very strange collision of of you know Northern European rationality right next to a kind of Swedenborgian sense of surrealism that's everywhere and and probably has to do with the fact that it has actually industrialized very very late and and urbanized quite late. Mm. Um, so you always feel the magic of the woods inside of everybody's heads. So I find Sweden complete mystery. Uh, mm. Russia, I kind of 
is, is self-destructive and crazy, yeah. but for me, very, for me, very easy to understand yeah. and understandable, but, but Swedes for me just have no, I can't see the, I can't see where it ends. What's at the bottom? Is it, is it, is it, is it the kind of Northern European rationality or is it actually the kind of kooky surreality? I don't mm. know. I, I love the romantic idea that it could be a kooky uh, surreal reality that's based on sort of mysticism that is somehow explicable because of their not so distant pagan and Viking roots. But I, I, yeah. I, I would hate to disappoint that. I'm not sure if that is actually at the core of it. I mean, um, you know, they still celebrate Midsummer is probably the biggest uh, festival here, which I'm yeah, sure familiar with. I know. But, you know, you dance around a penis that inserts into the earth. It's as pagan as it gets, you know, it's exactly it's what I mean. in the earth. It's yeah. So, there's there's that i mean um i don't know there's definitely something in the water here from a what would you call it a competency standpoint i mean if you look at them they're 11 12 million people or something and they have through their repertoire of businesses uh volvo saab ikea h&m klana spotify skype uh vattenfall north vault um like the list goes on of of multinational country, companies, which any country would be extremely proud to have created, but in per capita, they just they just churn out these amazing businesses, and it's amazing because that doesn't really balance with the sort of political uh, caricature that people have of Sweden as a rather socialist place. It's, it's it's really not socialist at all. I think like no no no, no. it hasn't been for a long time. No, it, it's really not the, the 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 one the 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 only distinction worth mentioning in here is is that people have um, extremely high trust in the government that they're going to spend their taxes effectively, and that's it. Look, I mean, I could talk about this for a while, but it's maybe too much of a tangent. To return to the most important question of this is not propaganda, um, and building off the crux of the first question, if we think about the value of propaganda remaining constant throughout history but the medium through which it is delivered forever changing from word of mouth to posters, to books, to cinema, to now social media. How do you see it developing from here? Uh, so you, you, usually when we talk about propaganda, we are talking about technological society. So, so, so obviously you can source it back to the Romans, whatever. Um, but, but usually we do mean the appearance of mass media. So usually, usually when we think about propaganda, you'd start with the first world war. Yeah, or the 19th century in the First World War. Um, simply because before that, it was obviously existed, but it was... The way we problematize it is really to do with technological society and technology and mass media. And until you have mass media, it's very hard to talk about propaganda the way we know it ourselves. And, and, and the big shift, obviously, is from one-to-many media, where you had a few media broadcasting to many, too many to many, where we're all little propagandists now, we're all little Goebbelses now, manipulating each other, pushing each other's buttons, goading each other. So, so you know, we're all propagandists now, and we're all more vulnerable than ever before as well. So, you know, that's the, that's the big change. That's the big change. I, I don't know where it's going to end up, um, but um, um, that's that's a really big change. Um, so, I, I expect the way we will go is. Is if we're going to look for a parallel historically, it's going to be like the wars of religion, which you know Swedes should remember. Um, and you know, when you have all these different forces fighting each other at the same time, you've got churches and princelings and countries and mercenaries, and that's kind of the landscape that we see. We see not just like the state and the opposition party and a big other country getting involved in the election. There'll be like the Russians 
There'll be private companies. There'll be far-right groups working together across borders. There'll be political parties. There'll be weird civic movements. There'll, there'll just be people literally just having fun mm-hmm. uh, and doing a campaign for the fun of it, for the roles. Um, and so everyone's doing it. And it's very much a war of all against all. And again, that allowed to the sense of things being very liquid, of these very, I think, very short-term alliances, getting together to do something, then breaking apart again. Uh, that's why I don't think we can return to this, this world of big narratives. Um, and like, here's my ideology versus your ideology. I think, I think that's gone. Um, so, so I think that's the way it's going to go. And, and the people who will win are the people who are the most liquid, the most nimble, the most able to adapt and reorientate themselves in, in, in this context. And who will be the most nimble in a way. Um, and um, uh, we'll see who that is. There's really two groups that do that, who, are, who I think are doing well. I mean, some are just doing well because they're big and powerful, so they have an unfair advantage. But the ones who are doing well, obviously, these, these people we've been talking about, sort of populists, we can call them, you know, you know right-wing mini autocrats, whatever. They're, they're doing very well in this world because they're, they don't have an ideology, so they can reorganize group identities very, very quickly. Um, and the other people who do well are democratic movements. They're actually doing, even though democracy is in a rollback, democratic movements are sprouting up everywhere um, across the world for very, very different reasons. So the real competition is between those two groups. I think like the old parties and stuff, are, they're, they're, I mean, they're doing fine because this will dominate institutionally in so many ways. Um, but really the exciting bits are between the democratic forces and these kind of like cynical populists. Uh, and obviously like the huge states mm. that use information as a weapon. So China and Russia are the main two, but others are getting involved. Um, so, so those are the interesting players. And uh, I don't think there'll be any kind of, it's hard to talk about who will win because I don't think there'll be any, I don't see any, any final moment. <laughs> you know, I don't see it kind of like, and we have reached the end and here is the new bet. I think, I think we're just going to be in this for a while. So we better get used to it. And um, um, and we'll see. Well, yeah. Um, to make a prediction would be pure fallacy. I mean, there's, there's no way to know. But I think that's really, really interesting. And I've now exhausted all of your time, Peter. So you have been um, um, an unreal, an unreal guest. Really, your 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 enthusiasm has really rubbed off for me, and um, I really love it. So just going to leave you with the final two the questions that I ask every single guest. And the first is. Which country, looking into the future, are you most bullish on? Uh, which country bullish on? Um, uh, yeah, very, what a very good question. Look, the most interesting countries in the moment are... Well, the most interesting countries, the countries to watch, that's probably not your question at all, are these kind of unstable democracies. Because if the big question is, can democracy be the best system in this new era? And that's, that's a really big question because the Chinese are kind of, and the Russians are saying, you don't need democracy. Democracy is a mess. Look at America, look at Britain. Our systems are going to be better in this chaotic world. You need discipline, you need top-down control, you need centralization of data. The knowledge economy works better. The, you know, the social service will be delivered better in a dictatorship. That's their big argument. They're making a big argument about technology and, and, and systems management. Um, and Silicon Valley agrees. And Silicon Valley also says, yes, we need all your data. We need to gather it all up. So, so, the, so, so the countries that are really interesting are the ones that, because the democracies won't stop being democracies, um, apart from Hungary and Poland, and maybe a few others, but, but most of them won't. 
Um, so, so it's the young state. It's the ones who are still choosing what they're going to be. So Mexico, you know, uh, Ukraine, India, these countries where we thought they're on democratic path. It's not really, maybe they will, maybe they won't. And, and whether they can, they're the belt, you know, they're the canaries in the coal mine. If they start going a certain direction, I think that's a really big sign that, that we're in much more trouble than we thought. Mm-hmm. The countries I'm most bullish on are, are kind of the frontline states that have become, that have started to think about the interface of disinformation, tech, and democracy. So the Taiwan and Estonia are always Beautiful. the two we keep on coming back to, who thought really very, very tech savvy, very much next to huge countries that want to fuck them up, um, learning how to fend for themselves, and 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 really thinking about how do we deal with what's a liberal doctrine of internet sovereignty? How do we stay open and have free speech, but deal with these bad guys on our doorstep? So I think Estonia and Taiwan are always the two that I keep on. And whenever I whenever I'm writing a report about how we deal with, you know, how we create an an information driven democracy that takes them into account threats. Estonia and Taiwan are the two that I keep on quoting. Um, so I'd say those two, those two are the two really interesting. Amazing. Really well, that's, uh, that's, that's brilliant. After about 60 goes, that's the first Taiwanese entry and also the first Estonian entry. So brilliant. And also double points. What do, people, what do, what do people usually, what do people usually, what do people usually say? New Zealand or something? No, I don't think we've gotten to New Zealand. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it would actually surprise you. You don't get necessarily what you would expect, which is America, uh, France, the United Kingdom. You definitely have gotten those. Um, a lot of people said Canada, or at least if you think of a disproportionate amount, have said Canada. Um, but then it's like random scattering. Mm. I've gotten a few Kazakhstans, surprisingly. Uh, I got a Madagascar, but I think that's just wishful thinking. But like, you know, a Sudan as well, wishful thinking. But still... Um, my own answer is, is, is Mexico, but um, uh, I'm definitely far too biased. How do you see, I'm very interested, so, so how, how do you see the, how do you see Mexico developing? Because I don't know it well enough, but I could tell that it's going through, you know, kind of, it, the kind of, the energy from the wave of democratization mm. seems to have gone. I mean, people are now think everybody's corrupt and cynical and progress is impossible. Well, I, I definitely, I'm discounting majorly all of the implications that you would prop up right which is their i suppose their politics right i'm I'm kind of discounting that which is might sound like a really stupid thing to do but um you said it's more corrupt than ever uh it's certainly not you know it's 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 been perennially corrupt since the birth of the state right um but just look at it this way from a geographical point of view they have um the two biggest oceans either side they're incredibly agriculturally fertile they have 150 million plus population who are who have an intensely powerful work ethic built into their culture. So they want to work, they do work. They have the biggest economy in the world as their northern neighbor. So they have a customer parentally as well, assuming America can can continue to go as they are. And um, the education levels in the country are skyrocketing, especially learning English. And that's just not because of their education system, because it's crap. Um, but it's because of the internet and it's because of way more American media uh, coming into the Mexican culture. Um, there's the biggest reasons that you can also add in other geographical reasons. 
most of the people that try to cross the Mexican border to go in the United States are not Mexicans, right? They're Venezuelans, the Guatemalans, Nicaraguans, Colombians, Brazilians, etc. Now, what happens when you get thrown back into Mexico is the exact same problem that you have in the United States. You have a legal migration, you have an illegal um, labor force who are willing to work for both less than the Mexican, but also um, for cash rather than Mexican. So you, you know, you lose the taxable revenues, but then what else do you have? You have all the benefits of migration, even if it is illegal, which is just more people doing more things. And a few of them are going to be pretty bloody smart. So cities like Tijuana are uh, huge cities of the future, huge cities of the future. And with Mexico, what you can see, if you go to Veracruz, if you go to Mexico city, if you go to, um, Guadalajara, even if you go to like, uh, Puerto Escondido now, um, which is becoming very quickly like another Cancun, right? Um, if money moves to these places, which is just to say wealthy Mexicans, um, the incentives are such that even though corruption is rampant, development happens, all right? And so the more of that that happens in Mexico, the better off they are. Um, they still have the huge stain of um the, the drug trade right but that's also a geographical problem but sorry i'm going on i realize you have to go um so i'm really sorry one last question yeah but very very interesting. Lo- 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 lovely to hear some positivity about mexico it's it's, an, it's a really interesting place i liked it if you could witness a conversation between any two people of history dead or alive language doesn't matter so if you were to listen to a podcast who do you want to listen to <sighs> what a great question um I mean, I'm just quite, I'm trying to think of something funny, but actually I'm, deep down, I'm just being greedy. Um, no shame and greed. What do you want to hear? Uh, quite like to hear, oh, I sounds so, so pretentious, but I quite like to see a sort of Pasternak and Mandelstam talking about, you know, how should Russian poetry deal with totalitarianism and and Stalin and what what is the role of poetry in responding to terror and oppression but also like quite technically like how should you write in this sort of of environment not 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 like does poetry save you obviously it doesn't but like like what is how do you write poetry and Mm. what do you do it about and how do you use language and what's anyway very nerdy i just that yeah i mean i like I'm, whole audience. i've never heard of either of those guys <laughs> oh they're, 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 okay yeah sorry they're two yeah. mid mid 20th century nice. well peter i um again thank you so much you got to run you got a big speech tomorrow and you've been a marvelous guest so thank you very much all right my pleasure all right then cheers mate. later all right, cheers, mates, for listening all the way through to this stage. Peter has a terribly contagious energy about him, doesn't he? I hope that uh, you enjoyed that chat. Although maybe that might be a redundant thing to say, unless you're quite masochistic, didn't enjoy it, but listen through to the end anyway. Nonetheless, I really appreciate the fact that I still have your attention. I want to make clear my ambition for this podcast. I want to corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities in whatever country it is that you're listening in from discoverability within the podcast algorithms are extremely stone age there is actually one variable that matters and that is the amount of five-star reviews attached to a comment that a particular podcast might have within the directory 
So I please ask, if you're keen as a bean and okay with supporting me, then do share this with a mate. But more importantly, pump your good juice into the algorithm. And that's the type of review that is five stars, a nice little comment attached so the podcast directories know what they need to be indexing a little bit more. I really cannot overstate how helpful that would be to me. And so that's all for me now. I'm writing a lot online. Go check out the website there. Um, you know, write to me if you think there's really good guests that I should talk to, stuff like that. Um, but also check out the other episodes, you know. I mean, like last week was with Yoss Benshop and we were going deep on Moore's Law. He's one of the most uh, key variables and one of the most important technological companies in the world. It was really, really cool to speak to that guy. Or even go back a few more episodes, you might see something with Stephen Hicks. If you're into Nietzsche, you might be something with Jim Henry, Capital Flight in the Developing World and the Development Crisis, one of the founders of the Tax Justice Network, one of the key investigative journalists who blew the lid off the off the cancerous world of tax secrecy, financial secrecy, and all the rest. Check it all out, or don't. I'd prefer if you did. But nonetheless, cheers for listening to this uh, stage of the show. Take it easy. Ciao.